A popular railway museum which opened in 1975 is said to be the haunt of a number of ghosts. A violent entity who lurks within the ladies' toilets. George, who remains within the travel and post office and still takes huge pride in his work many years following his passing. An unknown tall man in a top hat. A mischievous spirit who likes to mess up the gift shop after dark. And even a haunted train carriage which was once used as a mobile brothel by the Nazis during the Second World War. Would I encounter any of these phantoms when my team and I joined another group to investigate this building after dark? Let's find out together. Tonight, join me for a very special episode as I once again take on one of the scariest places in York. This time, the National Railway Museum. Welcome to the 8th Patreon bonus episode of How Haunted. How Haunted is a weekly paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as I'll take you along on a paranormal investigation at one of the most haunted places in the world. I'll explain in detail every aspect of the ghost hunt and once the investigation gets underway you'll hear audio from the investigation as it happens you'll be part of the team and you'll join us for what is guaranteed to be one hell of a night tonight let us once more visit york the most haunted city in the world to investigate the national railway museum and ask the question how haunted Listener discretion is advised, as this episode features real audio from an actual paranormal investigation where anything could happen. Listen on, if you dare. On the 16th of October 2010, I conducted the very first paranormal investigation for my book, Ghosts of York, which was published by Amberley Publishing in the summer of 2012. On that chilly autumn evening, less than two weeks before Halloween, I was joined by my good friends John Crozier, Andrew Markwell and Richard Stogo, as well as my younger brother Tom. The five of us would be joining another team for this investigation, and we would be spending a night in a building largely overlooked as being one of York's haunted sites. The building in question is the National Railway Museum, which attracts around 800,000 visitors every year, and almost all of them are oblivious to the long dead who call the museum, which opened in 1975, home. Many of them are said to be tied to items on display in the museum, as opposed to having links to the building or the area itself. This investigation formed the first chapter of my book, a chapter called Night at the Museum. I will read an abridged version of that chapter for you now, and throughout you will hear actual audio from the investigation. 
This audio hasn't been heard by anybody in the near 13 years since. The quality isn't perfect, but you'll be able to hear exactly what happened on our night, which proved to be unforgettable. And it would be so intense that for one of our team, this would be their final paranormal investigation for well over a decade. I checked my watch. It was 1.25pm and I could barely contain my excitement as I paced the living room, peering out of the window every few seconds, as I eagerly awaited the arrival of my brother, as Holly, my cocker spaniel, danced around my feet, mistakenly thinking that she might be in for another walk. A little over ten minutes later, late as always, my younger brother Tom pulled up outside. I grabbed my bag I packed earlier in the day and headed outside to greet him. We jumped in my car. We didn't have far to drive to pick up Andy, the next member of our team, as he only lived a few streets away from me. As Andy put his backpack into the boot, I noticed that it looked almost empty. He took a seat in the back, as Tom had called shotgun earlier in the week so was in the passenger seat. I turned and said to him, Did you actually pack your bag? Yeah, I've got a can of Diet Coke, my camera and a clean pair of underpants. Adam with a shrug. What else do I need? Touché. A short while later we reached John's flat and John approached the car laden down with two heavy bags, one of which he told us was full of warm clothes for the night ahead and the other was full of food and drink, including a pipe and hot flask of bovril. I pulled away and he began to reel off a long list of things he'd packed. I glanced in the rearview mirror and could see Andy's mind was racing. The realisation had set in that perhaps there may well be one or two things he should have brought, a torch for example, which had apparently slipped his mind. We met Rich, the fifth and final member of our crack ghost hunting unit, in the Millhouse pub car park just off the A1 at Washington, and we were on our way to York, reputedly the most haunted city in Europe, a city so terrifying that it should be twinned with Jurassic Park. Well, we were almost on our way, Rich was struggling to get into the back of the car. For reasons only known to him, John refused to put his big bag of food and drink in the boot and instead wedged it in between his legs. This meant Rich, who was sitting in the middle, was forced to half sit on the back seat and half sit on John's leg while swivelling his body to share a footwell with Andy. After ten whole minutes of manoeuvring into position, Rich said that he was in and they were ready to go. I looked in the rearview mirror and my entire back window was blocked out by Rich smiling back at me, appearing a foot taller than Andy and John either side of him because of his elevated position. We were now finally on our way, and as everyone chatted and laughed, you could sense the excitement and anticipation for the first investigation of our York adventure, the National Railway Museum. We'd only been driving for about five minutes, in fact we'd barely reached Durham, before John felt the need to delve into his huge bag of goodies and pull out some Ritz crackers. He opened them up and asked if anyone wanted one. Some of the others accepted, but I politely declined. But not quite so politely told everybody to avoid getting biscuity crumbs everywhere, as I'd spent over an hour earlier in the day cleaning and hoovering out the inside of my car. I happened to glance back a few minutes later and there were white specks all over the back of the car. I told you not to get crumbs everywhere, I growled accusingly at John. He was about to protest his innocence between mouthfuls of Rich crackers, but before he could speak, Rich looked down at the floor and confessed that the mess wasn't as a result of John's crackers. It was from his dusty pants. 
We all erupted into laughter before he could elaborate. But he went on to tell us that when he was leaving the house he managed to catch his trousers on something and it ripped right up the leg. He was short on time so ran into his spare room and after a frantic search he found the very baggy, very dusty trousers that he now had on. We weren't much further on our journey when Andy let out a very loud, very unexpected moan. This was followed by him complaining about how little space he had and since he couldn't move his feet he was adamant that he could feel the onset of deep vein thrombosis. He told us all in no uncertain terms that if John wouldn't put his big bag in the boot on the way back he'd be getting the train home as he was in agony. We arrived in York just after 4pm and aside from the regular deep vein thrombosis updates from Andy there'd been a real buzz from the lads during the journey. It was clear that everybody was just as excited as I was. I had made arrangements for accommodation for the five of us at Bar Convent, the oldest living convent in England. There had been a convent on this site since 1686, and the current Georgian building dates from the 1760s. We entered, and Rich explained to the sister on reception who we were, and that we were expected. Within moments a gentleman appeared and said, Ah, you're the ghost people, aren't you? The kindly sister who I'd been communicating with by email came to meet us. She welcomed us warmly, but was quick to make sure that we were only too well aware that Bar Convent itself is most definitely not haunted. We were shown to our rooms. Rich, Tom and Andy were staying in the gods, and John and I were in a separate tower. We were keen to get out and about in York City Centre, so left our bags in our rooms and John and I made our way to the front entrance of the convent, and we were joined shortly afterwards by the other three. It was the perfect autumn day. It was dry, with just the slightest of chills in the air. The unmistakable crunch underfoot of crisp fallen leaves in a kaleidoscope of reds, yellows, oranges and browns. As afternoon began to give way to evening, the sky over York was just as colourful, awash with every shade of blue, purple and pink imaginable. It was one of those truly breathtaking sunsets that makes you feel good to be alive. And although I said nothing at the time, at that very moment, there was nowhere I'd have rather have been on planet Earth than right there, in the historic city of York, with four of the best friends that anyone could ever wish for. The walk only took around 20 minutes, and when we reached the city centre, Andy popped into a shop to buy a torch. We then headed to the nearby Lendl Cellars pub. It was pretty busy, but we found a table for five in the atmospheric cellar which was formerly the Lord Mayor's Wine Cellar, and for which the pub is named. The pub stands on the site of a 13th century Augustan friary, and throughout the years many discoveries have been made during the countless transformations and improvements to the building, including a Roman well and walled-up human remains. As we had a few drinks and ate an evening meal, our conversation bounced from topic to topic. With the subject of the evening ahead at the National Railway Museum regularly coming to the fore. On our way back to the convent, just after leaving Lendl Cellars at about quarter past seven, we passed the National Railway Museum. It was now completely in darkness, making it appear an altogether more intimidating proposition than it had appeared during daylight hours, with families merrily coming and going. Tom passed comment that there was a definite chill in the air now, and it was only going to get colder during the night. 
We arrived back at Bar Convent and headed off to our rooms, arranging to meet at the front entrance a little over 30 minutes later at quarter past eight. A couple of the lads said that they might grab some sleep, as it was likely we wouldn't see our beds again until four or maybe even five in the morning. I decided to spend the time checking and double-checking all of my equipment for the approaching investigation, put new batteries in my torch, as well as my spare torch, and my digital voice recorder, and give my digital camera an additional 30-minute charge. It just after ten past eight, there was a knock at my door. It was John, and he appeared prepared for a trek across the frozen wastes of the North Pole, in his massive black coat, gloves, woolly hat, and a gigantic rucksack on his back. As I zipped up my jacket and picked up my bag, I passed comment on his Arctic Explorer get-up. He told me, as we headed downstairs, that he was also wearing a thermal base layer, had hand warmers in both of his pockets should he need them, and he had the aforementioned flask of Bovril to ward off the chill. When we stepped outside onto Blossom Street, it was immediately apparent that John was kitted out perfectly, as it was an extremely cold night with the temperature a teeth-chattering zero degrees Celsius, and it was only going to get colder. The others appeared five minutes later, with Tom and Rich wearing additional layers to counter the plummeting temperatures. Andy was wearing what he'd been wearing earlier. He may not have brought any additional clothing, but thankfully he'd been wearing a fleece already. It was a fairly short walk to the National Railway Museum, so we arrived just after 8.30pm. I made a call to our host for the evening, Tom Griffin, the security manager at the museum. He was already on site, came to meet us and show us inside. As well as having worked at the museum for over six years, Tom is fascinated by the paranormal, regularly investigating locations across the north of England with his team. When I had initially contacted the museum much earlier in the year to inquire as the possibility of carrying out a ghost hunt at the museum after dark, Tom had kindly responded to me explaining his role at the museum and offering us a chance to conduct a joint investigation with him and the other five members of his team, the Paranormal Activity Research Team, or PART for short. Tom led us to a staff meeting room which was to be our base for the evening. It appeared we were almost the last to arrive, as the room was a hive of activity with people setting up video cameras, laptops and voice recorders. There was somebody making cups of tea and coffee. Everyone acknowledged us, taking a moment out of their meticulous preparation for the night ahead to welcome the new faces entering the room. There were handshakes and greetings all around, as well as offers of a hot drink. This warm welcome immediately put me and the other new arrivals at ease. There were half a dozen empty seats around the large table which dominated the room, so we took the free seats in amongst the others. Over the next 15 minutes we had the opportunity to become acquainted with the other members of part. Tony Horner, Dwayne Ellis, Steve Garnett and Mark Tempest. They explained that the final member of their team was on his way and should be with us soon. We were also introduced to Harvey and Yusuf, television producers who would be filming the night's proceedings as they were in talks with the part guys about a potential television programme. Just after 9pm, our host Tom suggested that he give us a tour of the building with the lights on so we would have a better idea of the layout of the building once the investigation begins. He said that he would fill us in on the paranormal activity reported by visitors and members of staff, as well as happenings that he and his team have experienced on their many previous investigations at the National Railway Museum. Tom also made us aware at this point 
that there are two security guards on duty in the National Railway Museum overnight. One in the control room and one patrolling, but he will have radio contact with them both at all times. The twelve of us stepped, one by one, through a door which took us out of the staff area and into Station Hall, a large recreated period station comparable in size to that of a football field, housing a number of trains from a bygone age, including an exhibit of royal trains dating from 1840 to 1940. It really is a mecca for rail enthusiasts. Rich, John, Andy, Tom and I had visited York a number of weeks earlier and carried out a recce visit to the popular museum during the day. And even on a busy day, with visitors enjoying the train exhibits and having lunch in the restaurant, I found the station hall, with large echoey open spaces and eerie low lighting, to be an extremely atmospheric part of the building that just didn't feel quite right. Perhaps this was due to the fact that I knew that in a couple of short weeks, I'd be spending time here after dark. Looking towards the far right-hand side of Station Hall, if you are stood in the entrance area where the gift shop is, Tom told us as we all listened on intently, is extremely active, with the spirit of an unknown lady being seen on occasion. During one part investigation, Tony spotted the figure of a woman walking through the open area beyond the restaurant. He watched her for a few seconds, moving silently through the museum, before shining a torch on her. But the moment the beam of his torch hit her, she vanished. A regularly reported phenomenon throughout the hall is the sound of disembodied whistling of a merry tune, as if somebody is cheerily going about their day. Tom led us to a blue-coloured carriage, which he told us was Wagon H. Lees and Sons. It is believed that, although there's no evidence to prove this to be the case, during World War II, German officers ran it as a mobile brothel. There have been many reports by visitors and staff of banging coming from within the carriage when it's been empty. During investigations, the part guys have had good results, with knocking seeming to come in direct response to questions. One evening, in the area of the hall nearest the entrance, Tom was alone, and he heard footsteps walking behind him. He stopped, but the footsteps continued. He turned around to see who was there, and they stopped immediately. On another evening, on an investigation, Tom was in the same area, and he saw the figure of a man ahead of him. He could see him clearly in his torchlight. He was wearing brown trousers with a tight belt, a white shirt with no collar, and the sleeves rolled up to the elbows. He faded away before Tom's eyes. The team investigated the area, but there was no sign of the man. However, the spot in which the phantom figure had vanished was charged up with static energy. Midway down there, that's um, an active spot down around there. Okay. This section we've got here, you've got the restaurant section. Just beyond that, there's an open section where we have events. That's a particularly active area. On the right-hand side, there's a, a blue wagon called Wagon Lee. It's a French carriage. We believe it was used during the Second World War by um, German soldiers. The story behind it is, although there's no actual proof, is that it was used as a mobile brothel for the officers and what have you. We've been on there and that's where we've had some good responses to um, questions we've been asking, we're getting knocking responses. That's also where Tony got his sighting of the woman down there. Right. And what he's, when, he, when he put his torch on it was because he thought it was one of our group. That's why he's trying to light the way for her, but when he did it, she, she disappeared. And that was about the middle, just beyond this, this cooking area and about the middle. 
to the left hand side we took a, took a picture and we had an orb and that's one that we've got faces in. Have we got that on your laptop? Yeah, I'll so we'll show you, we'll show you that later on as well. Um, on the right hand side, which we're, we're going to go down now, <coughs> it's uh, next to the, what we call the lean-to, just through that arch there is, is a lean-to area. Um, I've had footsteps following me down there at night when I've done a few duties at night. Um, but we've also had a sighting down there. I was still with Tony at the time, but unfortunately Tony didn't see it. But I saw a fellow walking across, uh, brown trousers on, right up here, and sort of like a belt across the middle, uh, pulled really tight. Uh, light coloured shirt with um, a waistcoat on and, and, and the shirt had no collar on it and the sleeves were rolled up. But when we actually, so obviously we, we ran down to see if, you know, where he went sort of thing. Didn't see him after that, but the actual area from which he walked was, was totally charged up. I think it's like static, wasn't it? The hairs yeah. were up and everything, you could just yeah. feel it. So, <clears throat> we've also had whistling in, in this area. Again, we were all stood with the arches at one point. There's about four or five of us stood there just debating about what we were going to do. And we just heard this whistling. You know, like somebody going around the world, just, you know, happily whistling sort of thing. And we couldn't find the source of that. There are patrolling security staff. There's one in the control room at all times. And then there's usually one patrolling round. I've got radio contact with them, so I know where they are. So if we do hear or see anything, I can contact them and ask their location. And they'll do the same with us as they're moving around, just to sort of, because they don't want to feel what we're doing as well, so they'll let us know where, where they are through the night. Um, this is the station hall area. Um, it's, it's as big as you see it. We're now going to move down this side here. We're going to go through the shop into the, into the, what's called the Great Hall area. There's a large photograph from this wall down here. main door that we've all just come through mm -hmm. right, and we're up in this room here now at the moment that's where the hub is this here is that that's behind us there okay that's still outside that's called that's the, the friends of the national railway museum that's where their offices are and all this is as you see it it's, it's all still here now we're still trying to debate about whether or not this is this as well it does look a lot like it, mm. but again, there's no absolute definite yeah. um, proof to say yes, it is. But it does look very, very much like this, like this great uh, yeah. area here. But you can see um, that the lines actually came right up. So the lines, or the, the railway lines, actually come up past this building here. So we're going to go out now. All this is now taken over by the lane tomb and the shop area. And okay. That's just to give you an idea yeah. of what it was like early 1900s. Probably around the time of the Great War, maybe. We moved out of Station Hall and headed towards the gift shop and the front entrance. Tom led the way, but to our surprise he stopped outside the visitor toilets. He explained that the ladies' toilets is apparently haunted. I looked at Andy stood next to me, and he looked back at me. Neither of us were sure if Tom was being serious, or if this was kind of some pre-planned wind-up for the Geordie New Boys. However, as Tom continued to speak, it was obvious that he was being completely stray with us. The entity said to reside within the toilets has been nicknamed Paul. No one is sure who he was in life, his relationship with the museum, or why he opts to lurk within the ladies' lavatories. 
Paul is a very powerful, malevolent spirit. And on previous vigils, he has responded directly to challenges to display what he is capable of, by touching people and even opening toilet cubicle doors. So dangerous is this spirit that people have actually been attacked and hurt by him. A member of staff was washing her hands while talking to a colleague, and she began to make fun of Paul. At that precise moment, something grabbed her hair and pulled it incredibly hard. Her friend saw her head jerk back as she let out a panicked scream for help. In the pandemonium, they got out of there in seconds. But I also mentioned because the ladies' toilets is alleged to be haunted as well. And, uh, and they've nicknamed him Paul. I don't, I don't know why, but they've nicknamed him Paul. One of them, one of the girls that was in there, um, uh, was speaking about him in derogatory terms one day, and apparently he pulled her hair. And the other girl that she was talking to, she could see her hair going up and being pulled back as well. So that's in there. We've been in there, we've done a few vigils in there. I think the last one we did, um, we, we, we got something, we felt something. And it was a particularly nasty experience as well. We've not actually been in there, so what we don't want to do is go into unknown, you know, uncharted waters for us, because that's something that we're still looking at, but it's hard to deal with negative entities and what have you. So we've left that since, but if you want to go in there, stand there's something that we can look okay, at. Okay, cool. Yeah. Is this a new part of the building? Relatively new. I mean, the museum was opened in 1975, this side, and they've added bits onto it and, you know, throughout the last, oh, what, 30, or 30 years or so. And um, this, I would say, maybe 20 years old, this area. Tom told us that an unrelated phantom, a tall man wearing a dark suit and a top hat, has been seen in the corridor between the gift shop and the entrance to the station hall. The gift shop itself was the victim of poltergeist activity in the early hours one morning, when a security guard on patrol walked through the shop into station hall, and then five minutes later he walked back through the gift shop to find that a rack of postcards had been thrown all over the floor. Rich asked Tom if the incident had been captured on CCTV. But as we could see once Tom pointed it out, there is CCTV in the shop, but it's not pointing in the correct direction to have recorded anything. Yeah, we got an EVP in there. The girls, we're, when we were a much larger group, I think it was about 12, 15 of us at one point, all the girls were in there doing a vigil, and they got an EVP of a male voice just saying freight depot in the background. Very, very obvious it was, it was EVP because they were all female, but that was, uh, that was a male voice. We've had sightings here um, of a man in a top hat and um, Long coat, we were seen by a security guard coming through one night, walking across here. Another security guard was coming through one night, and on the right hand side there where the postcards are, used to be a lot of calendars on hooks, and he walked past one night, everything was alright, walked down to the station, all the patrol, come back, we came back, all the, everyone in the calendars were on the floor. Got video cameras in here. We've got CCTV. We've got CCTV. The next leg of Tom's terrifying tour took us into a different building called the Great Hall. And within only a few minutes we had an unexpected result. Our investigation hadn't even properly gotten underway yet. Heck the lights were still on. But our very own Rich Stogo had an experience so powerful, so bizarre, 
and made him reconsider his position as a self-confessed probably sceptic. This is what happened in Richard's own words. Once we had met Tom and his team, he took us on a quick look around the museum so we could get our bearings and wouldn't hurt ourselves later once security had turned the lights off for the night. The thought of six hours roaming through vintage train carriages and ancient railway platforms in the pitch black didn't so much fill me with fear. Instead, I had a horrible feeling of impending chronic boredom. Thankfully, my first experience happened during the tour itself, only five minutes after arriving at the Great Hall. The Great Hall is a modern building with contemporary air conditioning and lighting. There is the chopped off front end of a retired Eurostar train and a railway bridge exhibit. Hardly the stuff great ghost stories are made of. I was about to be proved wrong. Tom took us to a point between an old green travel and post office carriage and the railway bridge, and he pointed at the carriage. He explained that during a previous overnight vigil, a medium had identified the spirit of a man named George in there, and we would go in there soon, but first, Tom took us up the stairs of the railway bridge. I politely let everybody go first, and followed like the tail of the dog. As I reached the top of the stairs to a subtly arching bridge, I noticed that some of Tom's team had already started descending the steps on the other side and were heading towards the green post office carriage. I was a little disappointed that they were going to have some fun in a haunted carriage where we were stuck on some dull bridge like a bunch of train spotters awaiting a particularly rare brand of locomotive. And that's when it happened. All of a sudden I was overtaken by an incredible sense of panic. My heart started pounding in my chest and I started to shake. Tom had said earlier that if we saw, heard or felt anything strange to speak up, so I did, reluctantly. Nobody wants to be that hypochondriac ghost hunter who whinges about every draught or blast of cold air from the air conditioning, but this was very odd. Once I had told him of my symptom, he beckoned me closer to where he was standing, and I moved further onto the bridge. The panic stopped. Instead I felt warm, comfortable and very, very calm. Noticeably super placid. How peculiar. Things were about to get weirder. Someone jumped to their death off this bridge, said Tom. I'll not deny, this scared the hell out of me. He went on to say that a man who had molested a child couldn't live with what he had done and committed suicide by leaping from the bridge when it was in operation into the path of an oncoming train. After he said this, I returned to where I was standing originally and the panic set in again. Tom suggested we leave the bridge for now, and I was only too happy to oblige. I didn't experience anything else on our initial tour around the National Railway Museum, but a little later I got chatting to Dwayne, one of Tom's fellow ghost hunters, and another spine-chilling revelation came about it. It turned out that during the tour, Tony had got to the top of the bridge, immediately had become panicky, and headed off the other side. That's why we'd seen them earlier heading towards the travel and post office. Tony, it turned out, had experienced something similar to me, and corroboration is the gold dust of paranormal investigating. And my suggestion is probably that we start in the station hall area. Massive anxiety. We can, open, we can open a couple of the carriages over there and we'll actually go on to the car. Rick was just saying that. I don't want to be the hypochondriac, but... I've just walked on here, I've just felt really uneasy, really anxiety, uh, loads of anxiety for about two or three minutes while you were talking. Um, and it wasn't until you started talking about up there, I've just got a dead calm again. 
I don't know why. No, no, not at all. I don't have any problems with this. Uh, I feel, I feel really relaxed now. What, what we normally do before we actually start on our, on our inverts, not all the time, but some of the time what we do is um, a little tick test. Mm. Our psych Graham was, was buggered off home. He's, our, he's, he's the doctor, he's a yeah. psychologist. And what we do is a tick test to see how we are in our own minds, you know, whether or not we've had a stressful week or something stressful is happening at home because that can affect you on, yeah. you know, on investigations. So um, that's why I'm asking, you know, if, you know have you, have you, are you scared of heights, are you on medication and stuff like that? So I tend to be fairly in control of my emotions and normally if there is a change I notice it rather than be subjected to it. Yeah. That's why I have noticed it. Yeah. Um, but no, I feel really relaxed now, like really okay, now, uber relaxed. Yeah. I, and I had like a bit of a like anxiety kind of thing here. Yeah. And I, 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 yeah. And now I'm, I feel a bit warm and a bit kind of weird. Like so, I, that isn't me at all. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, These are the sort of things you know, as you as you people might um, pick up on more than what we we will be see. Because we've done it, we've done it that much. I think there's a tendency sometimes for us to just put it to one side and think, no, it's just me. Because we've experienced that much, you see, whereas you as new people, it might, it might corroborate with what we've already got or what we've been told about the place. What was Tom talking about when you started from like that? I don't know. It was before you mentioned that somebody had jumped off, though, which is right. what really made me notice it. Yeah. It wasn't until I started up at this flight of stairs, yeah. I just thought, there's something wrong here. And I started getting, you know, almost palpitations, but not but quite. The reason why I mentioned it is we did have a group in here and they were doing table tipping underneath. Right. And what they got from the, the tables was going all over the place. It was on wheels, mm. it was all over the place. But what they got was, it was somebody on here who had jumped. Yeah. And the story is, I, I, I don't know, it's, you know, I, I will take what people say to me, because if that's what's in the head, then fine, okay. Yeah. Uh, but the story that the, um, the medium was coming up was that this person was, was a fellow that jumped and he jumped because he'd been abusing kids and it got to him, you know, and so he jumped. Th that's what came in his head. True or not, I don't know, but, you know, we just take it as, you know, it's a personal experience to him. But it's, um, you know, you've had your own personal experience now and it, it, it could be related, but we can't unless we, unless we go away and suddenly somebody else comes up and says, I've just had a strange experience. Mm -hmm without, you know, it's totally independent from mm. what we say. They don't know it, and they can't say the same issue, then we might have something there. Yeah. I wouldn't have mentioned it unless you Yeah, no, but that's what I say to you. From this. You know, it doesn't matter yeah. how silly it might sound to you. You know, if, if you know that yeah. you're in good health today and you feel absolutely fine, and then you feel something, let us know, because that's what we need to document and, and look at. That was, that was really It was literally, I stood on this side and I felt, I thought, shit, I thought, on that side of the, even just moved to the other side of it, I felt warm and calm and it was just really weird. Tom took us over to the green travel and post office carriage, which he had pointed out when we entered the Great Hall, and we joined some of the part guys who were already inside. These carriages were used throughout the 19th century as a means of postal clerk sorting mail en route to speed up delivery. Tom told us that medium David Wells, formerly of most haunted fame, had visited the museum and was drawn to this fairly inconspicuous carriage. David said that there is a spirit named George on this carriage, who in life was a postal clerk, and to this day, he still goes about his daily duties. George is aware of people visiting his place of work, but he takes such pride in his work 
that he simply continues to sort mail. David appears to not only have made contact with one of the museum's most mysterious and lesser-known phantoms, but he's also finally provided a name for the spirit. There had been two extremely vivid, completely independent reported encounters with George that Tom was aware of since the museum opened in 1975. However, they had never been documented on the internet or in any books. That was until the release of my book in 2012. The first known sighting of George was made in the mid-1980s. A new member of staff joined the security team, and a few weeks later, his wife and child came to visit the museum. That evening, his wife told them that they had a really good day out. However, his child had found the mannequin in the travel and post office a little scary. He thought this was odd, as he knew that there were mannequins in some of the carriages in the station hall, but he hadn't seen any in the Great Hall. However, he was still fairly new to the job, so believed it was most likely an oversight on his part. The next day, as he was going about his duties, he passed through the Great Hall on his rounds and took the opportunity to peek inside the travel and post office. But there were no mannequins inside the carriage. His wife and child had both clearly seen a man sitting perfectly still and described him as sitting on one of the stools, smoking a pipe and wearing a grey suit with dark hair and a full beard. In the early 1990s, the same member of the security team was passing through the Great Hall when a female visitor to the museum approached him in a state of urgency and said, Do you know that carriage is haunted? and pointed at the travel and post office. There's something in there right now and it's a ghost. The lady was with her husband who was hanging back slightly from the conversation and seemed more than a little embarrassed by his wife's bold claims. The lady led the member of staff into the travel and post office. Her husband followed reluctantly a few moments later. Neither men could see anything, but she was adamant that there was a man sitting on one of the stools. She said that he was wearing a grey uniform and had a full thick beard and he was smoking a pipe. The member of security staff suddenly felt a chill pass through him as he recalled his own wife's experience which sounded almost identical. A curator to the museum was passing, so he called her over and explained the lady's story to her. The curator told the woman that it was unlikely there could have been a ghost fitting that description on the travel and post office, as staff were not allowed to smoke on the carriages. Tom went on to tell us, however, that research has since revealed that in the very early years of the travel and post office first coming into operation, they were actually allowed to smoke. Although these are the only reported sightings of the full spectral apparition of George that we're aware of, there may be many others where visitors have mistakenly passed it off as being a very lifelike mannequin. Um, the story with that is that um, one day, it was one of my security staff actually, when he first started here, his wife came down a few weeks after he'd started with a, with a child. And she went on there and um, had a look round and everything else. Later on that day when she was at home, she mentioned to the security guard that she, you know, she was working here that um, been around the museum, had a great time being on the wagon, but the mannequin scared the, the child a little bit. There's only two or three carriages that have actually got mannequins on them, and they're not over here, they're on the other side. So Tony said, well, I don't think there's anything on it, but I'll check on there. Went away the next day, checked, there's no mannequins on there. But she described a man sat on the stool in like a greyish suit, 
dark hair, smoking a pipe and the full beard. Um, sometime later, and this only came out whilst I was talking to that guard about it. Did you see the guy that was at the other side tonight? Yeah. Tall, Ken, he's been here 24 years. He was walking past here one day when we were walking, and a lady said to him, um, do you know that that carriage is haunted? There's somebody on there now and it's a ghost. Well, we're very... Customer service is paramount important to us, so we've got to listen to what the customer said if they're right, you know, then fine. So he went on there with her, and she was with her husband. Now, Ken couldn't see anything. Um, her husband couldn't see anything, but she was absolutely adamant. There was somebody sat there in a beard, grey suit, uniform, and smoking a pipe. As that was happening, there was a lady going past called Helen Ashby, the curator. Ken called her on, and she couldn't see anything either. They said it's highly unlikely because they weren't allowed to smoke on these carriages. So it was left at that. But we had two bits of information from independent witnesses saying the same sort of thing. So it was, there must be something in it. But Helen Ashby went away and did a bit of research later on and found that actually when they were first running, you were allowed to actually smoke on and they did smoke pipes. So, what I'd say, Jeff Wells has been on there. I can't remember the name, I think it's either George. I think it's George, is the, uh, the spirit that's on there. So we've got, we've got to have a look at that now. Just saying, Rob, it's about second or third stool round down, the way this fellow's been seen. Second or third stool down? What, from the end, yeah? Yeah, uh, from this way, going, going down. Ah, uh, right. Um, and also, uh, you notice how tidy it is now. Yeah. We've had... Um, occasionally when we come in and some of these letters have been on the floor, that cup's been on the floor and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Now, it's, you know, somebody could do it, you know, it could be a visitor or something like that, but they would have to climb over this barrier to yeah. do it. Yeah. And it'd be silly to try it because of some, you know, somebody's going to report them straight away. Yeah, and what's the point? But, exactly, what's the point? So, you know, we've had that, but again, because it's not been seen happening... No. It's, it's, yeah, it's of course. It's no real, tangible proof again. Aye. Uh, we left the Travel and Post Office, and Tom guided us to the rear of the Great Hall, where he told us that a former member of part decided to conduct a solo vigil in this area. After only a few minutes, she heard the footsteps of someone approaching her from behind. Assuming it was a teammate coming to join her, she turned to talk to them, but she wasn't prepared for what actually stood before her. She described the see-through figure of a young woman wearing a blue shirt. It shook her up so much that not only did she vow to never step foot inside the National Railway Museum again, but that very night she left the team and has not been on another paranormal investigation ever since. That rather stark warning of what the National Railway Museum may be capable of after dark brought Tom's tour to an end, and as we headed back to base, I couldn't wait to get the lights turned off and see what the museum may have in store for us once our investigation got underway. So we're in the Great Hall area now. <coughs> this um, used to be, um, well now and then we've got what's called a turning circle. You get trains coming in onto the turning circle, they'd be turned to whatever, whatever track they're going onto and then they'd be moved off. So there's a turning circle down there. There used to be one over there where Shinkansen is the, flight, the uh, uh, bullet train, the white one up the far side. But it's all filled in now. In terms of uh, activity, the TPO wagon, that's this one here, 
travelling post office goes back to about 1830. The, the haunting office is a haunting, um, is constant more or less. Um, from what we've been told by mediums um, that have been on there, and the only one that I trust is um, David Wells. Yeah, David Wells has been here and says there is a spirit of He's just going about his normal daily duties, which was putting letters in. He's just doing what he, you know, he's, he's here. Haunted, although I've asked from it and neither the group, but apparently somebody jumped from here when it was actually in place, wherever it used to be, I think somewhere near Leeds. So somebody's supposed to jump from this onto the track when a train was coming through. At the bottom end, <coughs> left hand, again when we had a large female member of our staff, uh, group down there, who turned to the side because she thought one of, our, one of us was with her and she turned to the side there was a young lad there in a blue shirt rolled up sleeves and she never came back after that she and she's never been back since but probably well, you know scared the living daylights out of her obviously so she's never been back since outside this wall here we've got what's called the local prep area um, and sometime after the 1960s 70s there was what's called a shunting operation out there and that's where you where you bring two carriages up to meet each other and then you link them up it's called a shunt and you have a minimum of two people doing that one is obviously the driver and the other one is the actual the actual shunter and the shunter will bring the the carriage up so he's telling the driver what to do and then tell it to stop and then point down to say i'm going to look it all up for some reason the hand signals went wrong and he went down to couple them up and the wagon came forward and chapped his head between the two, um, between the buffers. You see these big silver discs here? They're buffers. So he chapped his head between, not between this one, two carriages that were out there, killed him instantly. Um, it's not said to be haunting, but what we did pick up on, again, when we had a large group, one of the female members picked up on, on somebody over there and complained of a really, really bad headache. When she went away from the area, she was fine, she moved back to the edge, kept getting this headache. Maybe something, maybe not. That was a personal experience to her, and I wouldn't want to actually experience something like that. The far side, the white wall, there's um, offices inside of that white wall area, and quarters, studios. Um, in there, <coughs> staff have witnessed cold spots for instant drop in temperature followed by footsteps and on some occasions staff being touched on the hips and what have you. Um, we've only ever been in there once, we've never been in there since. No reason for it, we, we, and there's that many areas really that we need to look at. But it's, it's, a, it's a probably an area that we will go back to at some point in time. Um, beyond the wall, beyond that grey door there on, on the top is the workshop area. That's a new area. We don't go in there because it's too many hazards really, it's going to be we don't actually go into that space at all. So tonight, we've got all this space here, we've got all the station hall, we've got the PAB building that we've just been in as well, um, and as I mentioned there, the basement area in one of the archive rooms, we picked up on um, a young lad called Daniel, don't any more than that. Um, I'd, I've had particularly a weird experience down there, again it was caught on camera. Um, 
I'll, I'll let Tony explain to you later on because I, I don't remember a great deal about it, but apparently I put the willies up one of the lads. You know, from what I did, it scared him quite a lot. So we've got all this space at the PAB and we've got the station hall. So there's quite a lot to go at. When we arrived back at base, Graham Ramsden, the latecomer from Tom's team, was waiting to greet us. Graham introduced himself as the team's parapsychologist as he shook me by the hand. We all took a seat around the table and Graham handed everyone a sheet of paper. I scrutinised the text as Graham explained that what he'd given us was a questionnaire to establish the level of stress we have in our lives, with questions such as, have you recently lost a job or been made redundant? And, have you had a family member or close friend pass away in the last 12 months? Graham told us that people under a large amount of pressure or struggling with grief can experience sights and sounds brought on by their mental state, rather than anything paranormal. Each question carried a weighted score, and a score of 150 or more would result in a 75% chance of this being the case, and scores of over 300 would mean that there was a 90% chance. We all scored below 100, which pleased Graham, as it meant that none of us would present a possible risk to the validity of any experiences once the investigation began. And the time for us to get the lights turned out and get our ghost hunt underway was finally here. I checked my watch and it was 10 past 10. We split up into two teams agreeing to meet back at base at 11pm. Tom radioed through to the security control room and asked for the lights to be switched off. And then he joined myself, Andy, Dwayne, Mark and Yusuf and we headed to Station Hall. Rich, R, Tom and John joined Graham, Tony, Steve and Harvey to make up the second team and they headed to a room we hadn't visited on the tour but Tom had pointed out briefly as we passed. The archives. The six of us and our team sat on the steps next to the royal carriages. I hung my voice recorder from one of the handles of the carriage and clicked the record button. The reason for doing this was twofold. If we were to hear anything unusual, I would have hopefully recorded it, so we could study it more carefully back at base, or I could review it myself on my laptop when I got home. The second reason is that maybe I could capture electronic voice phenomena, EVPs, electronically generated voices captured on electronic recording equipment, which cannot be heard by the human ear in the actual environment in which they are recorded, until the recording itself is played back. Skeptics have given the explanation that these voices are more likely to be static or stray radio broadcasts than actual ghosts making contact. But with the huge advances in recording technology, especially in recent years, digital voice recorders, with the ability to record in high quality, are relatively inexpensive, and this sound quality makes it a lot more difficult to debunk some of the EVPs being captured. An alternative form of EVP is white noise, tuning a radio into the static between radio stations. And it is said that spirit is able to reach out and make contact with us on these unused frequencies. This is something that we would explore on a later investigation. Dwayne also placed his recorder nearby, and we all sat in silence in the pitch black station hall. As the minutes passed by and I listened intently for something anything out of the ordinary. I realised that I don't recall ever experiencing such silence such as I was now. There was no sound at all. No constant hum of the air conditioning, no traffic noises from outside, 
We'd heard fireworks going off as we walked to the National Railway Museum earlier, but I couldn't hear anything now. The only sound I could hear was the sound of my own heart beating, and it beat faster in my chest as I anxiously waited to see what was going to happen. I wouldn't have long to wait. The silence was suddenly broken by a voice coming out of the darkness to my left, making my jump. It was Mark, excitedly asking if anybody else had just heard a voice. A torch clicked on, and his teammate Dwayne, and the television producer Yusuf, confirmed that they too had heard the voice. They both described it as a very deep man's voice. Mark agreed that this had been what he'd heard, and it sounded like it was coming from the open area at the far end of the hall near to where the restaurant is. I turned to Andy, wondering how on earth I hadn't heard it too, and asked what he'd heard, but he said he'd not heard anything. Tom hadn't heard it either, but with half our group hearing something, we had a lead, and we relocated to the area that the voice had appeared to come from. Tom asked out for anything that may be with us to make itself known, but five minutes passed by with no response, so we agreed a different approach was needed. Dwayne suggested a seance around one of the tables from the restaurant, and we all agreed it was a good idea, so Tom borrowed a glass, and Tom, Dwayne, Mark and I sat around the table. Yusuf was filming the seance, and Andy said that he was going to go and bravely spend some time quietly alone back near the royal carriages for ten minutes or so. By the light of one torch, the four of us lightly placed the tips of our index fingers on the bottom of the upturned glass, and Tom began to ask for any spirits present with us to use our energies to move the glass. We all focused on the glass expectantly, as Tom continued to ask for the cooperation of whoever it was that Mark, Dwayne and Yusuf had heard speak only ten minutes earlier. However, if something or someone was lurking in the darkness of Station Hall, they weren't playing ball and we brought the seance to a close ten minutes later with no success. The glass hadn't moved at all. It was approaching 11pm, so the other guys headed back to base while I went to retrieve Andy from his solo vigil. Andy said that he'd sadly experienced nothing, but we chatted optimistically as we went to join the others. The night was still young, and we had plenty more locations ahead of us. This is, this is Queen Victoria's coach, by the way, this one. 
이상하겠잖아요. Hear anything? No. It's good that something's happening already, though. Yeah, it's on the <laughs> oh, yeah, it's really. 
Oh well, I don't think we will. If there's anybody close by to us who wants to make contact, he can do through this cup on the table. Come close and move the cup. Tricks. Just 
form of communication. If you can move this glass, then do so, then we know that you're here. Andy and I were the last to arrive at base, and we quickly learned that the other team had drawn a blank down in the archives, although when I got chatting to Rich, he told me that he'd found it extremely unnerving and very, very, very dark. We had a drink, and John tucked into a Kit Kat as we discussed our next locations. There was a slight change to the team with Graham and Mark trading places. The other team were interested in following up on the voice heard by some of our number in the station hall and our team decided to see if we could reason with the potentially dangerous spirit of Paul in the ladies' toilets. When we entered the ladies' toilets, it didn't feel quite right. And I don't mean in a spooky ghostly sense. I mean that when I looked at the ladies' sign on the door as the door fell shut behind me, I felt like we were somewhere we shouldn't be. It was a fairly spacious room with clean white walls, toilet cubicles, sinks. You know, the things you'd usually find in a public toilet. We spread ourselves out around the room. Andy stood at the far end of the room next to a bin with a sticker on the lid which said, Nappy Bin. Tom stood against the door we just came through. Yusuf stood with his back to the door of the first cubicle, and Dwayne Graham and I 
stood with our backs to the counter with the sinks built into them. I passed comment to Tom that there was quite a lot of light coming in through the window, and he explained that unfortunately there was an emergency light positioned on the wall opposite the toilets which was one of the few lights in the museum that had to remain switched on at all times. Graham began to ask for Paul to make himself known to us, as the other five of us stood in silence, scanning the room for any sign of movement. So any spirit persons here with us in this room? Can you hear my voice? Can you give me a sign, please? Can you knock on something? Can you touch one of us? Can you open and close one of these doors? Toilet cubicles? Can you try and call out your name? Don't mean you any harm. Tom moved further into the room, and then a moment later suddenly span on his heels, saying that he'd seen the shadow of a man pass the door, heading towards Station Hall, breaking the light coming through the small round window. Nobody else had seen it, but none of us were facing the direction of the door. Andy suggested that it may be one of the other team who may have had to use the facilities and pop to the gents next door, and I added that it may have been the member of security on patrol. Tom radioed through to Tony and the other team, who confirmed that all seven of their number were present and hadn't left Station Hall. Tom then contacted security, who advised that the security guard on duty was currently in the Station Hall, which was the other building, and hadn't been in the area we were for over an hour. We were buoyed by this result, and Graham eagerly continued asking for Paul to give us some kind of sign that he was amongst us. Told or past the light from an angle here. It's not up there, not in the corridor. So you just saw the head then? That's weird because I've just felt a breeze blow past the side of my head. I was just about to ask if there was anything in here in like the way of air conditioning. I didn't expect there would be given the toilets. Whatever it was, it was fairly quick that we just went straight across there. Right in front of the door or behind it? I can't get out of the moment. I think, I think it was behind it. Yeah, If a spirit person here that's either watching us or observing us and they want to try and communicate, then please come forward. Please try and walk by us again. That's, that's what we did last time, wasn't it? Yeah, because it, yeah, it, 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 it was around this area, wasn't it? Yeah. Sorry, it was around this area. 
have to say, I have to say, out of all the museums, this is where we've had the most yeah. interesting yeah. occurrences. Probably Colton. Come and join us. Come and do something to let us know that you're here. Touch one of us. Make a noise. There was no response. So Graham changed his approach and tried challenging Paul to demonstrate his power to us. Somehow proved to us that he didn't just prey upon women. At that moment, I felt a strong breeze blow across my face. And Graham stood next to me, said that he felt it too. Graham tried to rationalise and establish where it may have came from. There was air conditioning in the toilets, but we quickly determined that this was not switched on. Graham tried to get through to Paul again by asking him to affect us in some other way. I suddenly came down with a really bad headache and began to feel a little dizzy and disorientated. The more Graham asked, the worse my headache became. I was going to speak up, but before I could, Tom unexpectedly shouted stop at Graham. Tom had mentioned to me earlier in the evening that he is sensitive to spirit, and he explained the reason for his sudden outburst. He said that he felt angry as Graham continued to challenge Paul. And the more Graham spoke, the angrier Tom got. I realised that as I listened unamazed by what Tom had to say, my headache had completely vanished. This was all becoming rather weird. But unfortunately, the time had come to head back to base to meet the other team. So you just saw the head then? That's weird because I've just felt a breeze blow past the side of my head. I was just about to ask if there was anything in here in like the way of air conditioning. I didn't expect there would be in the toilets. Whatever it was, it was fairly quick that went, just went straight across there. Right in front of the door or behind it? I can't get out of the door. I think it was behind If a spirit person here that's either watching us or observing us and they want to try and communicate and please come forward please try and walk by us again that's, that's what we know last time wasn't it? yeah, it, yeah it, it, it was that area it was around this area wasn't it? yeah sorry about that but it was around this area I had a freaking moment there didn't I? Mean, yeah in this area I have to say, I have to say, out of all the museums, this is where we've had the most yeah. interesting yeah. occurrences. Probably Colton. Come and join us. Come and do something to let us know that you're here. Touch one of us. Make a noise. As we entered the staff room, the other team were already back, and they were excitedly huddled around a television in the corner of the room, to which they were connecting the night vision video camera that Tony had been operating during their vigil. I shouted over to John to find out what the commotion was about. He came over, and he told me that they spent the last 45 minutes on the Wagon H. Lazenson carriage in Station Hall, 
which was believed to be used as a brothel during the Second World War. They had heard a tap on the carriage window next to where they were sat, so Rich, who speaks German, asked questions in a language that spirits of German officers may understand. They then captured the most amazing orbs on video. Orbs are believed by some to be a manifestation of spirits, sometimes called energy balls, whereas some believe them to be nothing more than dust or insects reflecting light. So they were connecting the video camera to the television to study them in a little more detail to see if it could be eliminated by being some form of natural phenomena, such as perhaps an insect flying past catching the light from the camera. As the other twelve gathered round the TV, I sat back, opened a can of pop and wondered to myself if anyone had considered the possibility that the orbs could have been dust from Rich's extremely dusty trousers. Just after midnight, our team were heading out to the Great Hall to investigate the travelling post office, a location that I personally had been eager to visit since first contacting the museum to make arrangements for this very evening. As we left the base, a couple of the part guys shouted over to let us know that the orbs on the recording, unfortunately, seemed to be nothing otherworldly and were probably just dust. They added that they were going to spend some time in the ladies' toilets and we'd meet up again in an hour. At hearing this, Graham decided to leave our group and join the others, as his interest had been piqued by Tom's reaction to his questions, and he was keen to see if he could provoke a similar reaction from one of the members of the other group, who were currently unaware of the earlier incident. Our team, now down to five, entered the Great Hall, and the first thing that struck me was how much more menacing this vast building appeared with the light switched off. The Travelling Post Office is to the right of the entrance, and as we approached it, with me bringing up the rear, I had an uneasy feeling of being watched. This led to me constantly turning around and scanning the area with my torch. The feeling I had of being watched was so strong, so real, that I almost expected to catch a glimpse of someone or something moving in the darkness. Once we were inside the 19th century carriage, Andy, Yusuf Duane and I sat upon the four stools in the mail sorting area, and Tom positioned himself near the entrance, recording us with a night vision video camera. Duane suggested we should saw through the mail, as on previous investigations it's produced some good results to attempt to make contact with George, while appearing to be doing the same job that he had done daily now in this very carriage for over 200 years. I clicked record on my voice recorder, placed it upon the counter, and began to saw through letters. As did the other guys. This time I led the attempts to make contact with George. I asked my first question. If you're present, George, can you let us know you're here with us? As I said this, Dwayne and Andy simultaneously said that they'd heard a noise, which they both described as sounding like a man sighing. Andy added that he had heard it really close to his left ear. However, I was sat immediately to his left, and I hadn't heard anything. I continued to ask questions as we sorted through the mail, but our remaining time at the Travelling Post Office passed without any response. Before leaving, we left the video camera locked off, which means that we would leave it recording unmanned, fixed upon one continuous shot, and we scattered a few letters around the stools and on the floor, in the hope that George, a man obviously proud of his work in his carriage, would tidy up and we capture this on camera. I returned back to base with the other guys, and I felt a little despondent at the lack of conclusive activity so far, although I know only too well that paranormal investigating is a waiting game, 
and patience is a must-have attribute for anybody considering taking up ghost hunting seriously. What we sort of tend to do is uh, yeah, sort of pretend we're sort of in post. There's a couple of names that we might call out in here, and we've not got any verification really of George. Several people have picked up on, and there's also a Thomas yeah. uh, that we've had before. A couple of people have So we might, you know, we call out both of them. That's not for any other reason than that. All right. tonight if you are if you can see us or if you can hear my voice can you do something to let me know can you move some of these letters I hope you don't mind that we're sitting at your workplace. We don't mean to intrude. We're only here because we're interested in you. We'd like to find more, find out more about you. So if there's anything you can do to confirm to us that you can hear us or see us, please can you come forward and do it? Can you move one of us? Touch one of us. Can you move an object? Can you make a loud noise? It'd be interesting to know if any of you felt that's get any feelings at all. Cause all right. Because one of the things that we've picked up in this carriage quite a bit is more feeling than actually, you know, yeah. physical mm -hmm. evidence. And they tend to sort of go along a theme, so if you're thinking anything or feeling anything, let us know and we'll, we'll sort of confirm whether oh, we've had that before. 
Are you here with us, Thomas? Can you see us? Can you hear us? If you can, can you knock on something to let us know? in one of the letters in my hand and I know this is your job someone just breathe out then did you just breathe out loud no I won't no no I did that as well did you I was on my left did you yeah a real long breath yeah Tom yeah a real deep breath here and it's right in my microphone which is, is it? on the yes. table here yeah. and I've just got a feeling on my right hand side now I'll tell you what it sounded it was literally I'll reproduce what I could hear but it was like a yeah I heard that on your mic and you heard that on your left Andy yeah because I'm stood right next to your left and I didn't hear a thing I'm not yeah. who's, who's sitting next to me uh, Andy, I'm Andy. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm yeah. literally, like I'm literally... Oh, I am, we're uh, like inches apart. Yeah, yeah, inches yeah. away from him, I'm right between these two seats. Did you hear it as well, then, Andy? Yeah. I didn't hear a thing, though, and if it was um, on your left, I should have heard so it. I thought it was Andy, but... No, it definitely wasn't me. But if you'd have made that noise, I'd have heard it. I know. That's good. Um, yeah, so whether Thomas or George, if you're here, I'm holding letters in my hand, and I know this is your job. And I don't mean to be rude. I'm sitting at your workplace. Now, if you want me to move, what I'll need you to do is move these letters out of my hand. Take the letters from me. Knock them out of my hand. Or move any of the posts that you can see. Anything around this workstation, this workplace, move it. And I'll respect you and I'll, I'll move. appreciate it very much if you came forward and you tried to communicate with us tonight. Come on, take a letter from me. Side then. 
something at me. Tell us about the job, George. Tell us what you actually did here. You know, we could see the pigeonholes, we could see the envelopes. But was there, was there more to it than sorting the mail out? Well, George, if you're here, which I think you are, Give us that little sign. We know this is your space and we respect this as your space. But we have a genuine interest in you and the life you lived and the, the job you did on this carriage. Can you move in front of Dwayne now? Show yourself as a light in front of Dwayne. Let me see you on the camera. on this carriage to Andy or to Rob or to Yusuf or close to them touch one of them no oh. the knob yeah yeah 5.59 well I like the knob I have to check it but it came uh, left to right going up past your shoulder your right shoulder. Come on, George. Let's see that again, George. If that was you, if that's how you do it, if that's how you show your presence, can you do it again? Sorry for asking so much, but it's the only way that we can identify you. Unless you knock on something or make a noise or speak to one of us. Got really cold here now. I am a little bit cold, so. Really cold? Yeah. Uh, Show yourself as a light. There, when we pass my hand. Is it cold there? I feel it down my leg more than anything. Mm. Yeah, sure. Go close to one of the lads. My name's Tom. And there's Dwayne. And there's Andy, and there's Rob, and there's Yusuf. We're all here for you, to communicate to you. Find out a little bit about your life and about the job you did. Why you're still here. Speak to us. 
We've got equipment that might be able to hear your voice, even if we can't. Other than you, Tom, is there anyone else walking behind me? Walking behind you? Yeah, are we all no, seeing? Andy sat down next to you, Rob stood up next to Andy, and you sat down next to Rob. Are you happy with the museum, George, or Thomas, whoever's here? Are you happy that the museum, George, chose your carriage to preserve, to put on display for the public? so many questions of you. Do you want us to leave? Do you want us to leave you alone? Leave you in peace? If you do, knock on, knock on something. Just give us a sign and we'll go straight away. Do you want to communicate with us? Do it in whatever way you feel comfortable. Either by touch, by affecting the temperature, by talking to us, or moving something, making a noise. table three times. If you can hear me George, could you please repeat the knocking sound? Come and stand next to me George and knock on this table. Yeah, there's a knock then. Did you hear that? I heard something. My microphone's actually on the table, oh, so right. it's, it's picking it up quite clear. I think there's a draft on the table. I think there is, your man. I'm going to knock again, George. In front of me here, where these letters are, I'm going to knock three times. If you can hear the knocks that I make, please repeat them. Can everyone just for a minute just sort of 
take their hands off away from this, uh, this bench or mm -hmm. just to make sure that they're not moving because I'm, I'm getting knocked through the microphone. But I can't tell if it's, it might even be just the wood. No hands so I've got my knees near it but there's nothing else that's touching me. George, if you can hear this, please copy. Make that same sound. Come on, concentrate. If you can do it, it'll let us know that you can hear us and that you're trying to communicate. any spirit persons in here that can see or hear my voice, you can see me, show yourself to me, come and join me here at this, at your workplace, show me how you work. I've just got some sort of, um, sort of, I don't know, like a shadow or something there. Breaking the, the the light, the beam of the light on here. I'll check on 1357. Show me how you work, George. Show me what you do. What are these pigeon... I don't understand what these pigeonholes are for. Show me what you do with the letters. Because it seems to me like it's a really easy job. I don't see what's difficult about it. But perhaps I'm wrong. Move some of these letters in front of me. Show me where they're supposed to go. If you're not happy that I'm asking you all these questions, can you let me know? If you're not happy that I'm asking questions, just poke me. Just get your finger and just prod it to my shoulder. Just to let me know that you're not happy. Anybody else in this carriage? Is that one of the displays, Tom? Um, not that big thing, really. Yeah. Sounds like a car outside of it.
Is anyone picking anything up? Feeling anything? Or? Yeah. So what's the pain relief? As well. Do you get that feeling then? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had that earlier one. You see, that's why I asked Tom. Who else is? I wasn't there before, though. Oh, you weren't here then? No, no, I'm just coming here now. Oh, how long ago? How, how, how long have you been stood there? Um, you know when he said to take hands off the table? And oh, right, so they were making some food oh, while I was sitting there. So I thought I heard a whistling a few minutes ago. Is there any other spirit person here on this carriage? Or outside the carriage? Or outside the carriage, if you want to come in. If you want to try and communicate with us, then you're more than welcome. Use our energy to try and communicate with us. You can do anything you like. Move stuff around. Show yourself to us as a light. Push one of us. Anything that you're able to do, please do it. And it will confirm to us that you can hear or see us. Come on, George. Come forward. You've done it before. You've introduced yourself to people before. see me. Please let me know by knocking. Show yourself as a light. Move something. I can hear little knocking noises. That's what I was getting on that bench. Yeah. Well actually I can't feel the vibration of it on the bench clicking. It sounds like it's from round here. One or two that I noticed, the faint ones, it was actually my knee. Right. Up against the, you know, the level front. And every, even the slight movement on my leg was making a, a little bit of a sound. Stand up. But there were some that I, you know, I knew I'd not moved at all and still getting them. Two taps there. No, that was me, sorry. Was it? Yeah. know that you're here by tapping where Tom is. Tom's got his hand on the bench and he's in front of the workstation. Can you knock on that workstation? Can you move something down there? Can you move one of the letters? Take any letter from out of the pigeonhole and move them, or throw it on the floor. 
Yeah, I don't think you'd do it like that, Dwayne, because it's... No, I don't think it would. It works on the progression or what Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Unless it, you know, has a bit of a tantrum or something. <laughs> George, why don't you um, just take a rest, light your pipe up, just have to sit there and relax and have your pipe for a few minutes. You've worked hard today. I'm telling you, you can go on a break, it's okay. Just sit down and relax and smoke your pipe. You normally get things quite quickly when you're in. Sometimes, yeah, we have in the past. One of the main things that we, we get is the feeling of someone walking up and down. Yeah. Especially if we sit down on those, you know, work areas. Yeah. We kind of get the feeling that there's, you know, someone's either at one end of walking down towards us or walk, you know, walking backwards and forwards, really. But we kind of... Um, we don't know if this, that's this George fellow or this Thomas fellow. Yeah. But he seems like a supervisor of some sort. And also from where I'm standing now with this camera behind me, there's normally a, quite, a, quite a strong feeling of someone being at this far end of the carriage, at least where I am now, yeah. looking down at us toward the end. But I, I mean, I've been here in five, ten minutes, I can't feel anything at this point. And normally it's... We're constantly sort of like looking around because we yeah. can't keep thinking or there's something behind us, but I've not had any of that feeling tonight. The other group returned shortly afterwards from the ladies' toilets, and they told us that they'd all felt a kind of swirling breeze moving around the room as John asked out, attempting to communicate with Paul, but the unusual breeze stopped as quickly as it had begun. With 1am fast approaching, Yusuf and Harvey said their goodbyes, as they had to hit the road for a long drive back to London. Mark rejoined Tom, Andy, Dwayne and I to even the numbers out, leaving Rich, John, R, Tom, Tony, Steve and Graham to make up the other team. Our team's next location was to be the archives deep below ground, a large air-conditioned room used to safely store the museum's treasures which aren't currently on display. We made our way by torchlight to the furthest area of the room, an open area with a couple of seats. Mark told Andy and I about previous investigations and the phenomena experienced, attributed to a spirit that they called Daniel, and he seems to be drawn to the archives, as he is attached to one of the artefacts, but nobody is quite sure which piece specifically. Daniel manifests himself in the form of footsteps, breathing, lightly touching people, and on one particularly terrifying vigil, possession. He explained that the guys from Part had been in the archives in the early hours one morning sitting in silence, in utter darkness. The only light coming from a flashing LED on a night vision video camera that Mark was operating. A rustling sound was heard coming from the back towards the door of the room, so Mark swung around to see what the video camera could pick up. The other guys remained silent in the hope of the sound developing into something more substantial. A few minutes passed by without incident, so Mark turned around but he got the fright of his life. 
Tom had approached him when his back was turned, and he was now nose to nose with him. But he almost didn't look like Tom. His face was contorted, in what seemed to be pure anger and hatred. A couple of the other members had to physically drag Tom away from Mark, and talk to him quietly and calmly, until he appeared to snap out of it, at which point he had no recollection of anything that had happened, except the last thing he remembered was feeling an intense rage like he had never felt before. We turned our torches out, and I immediately knew what Richard meant earlier, when he described this room as being very, very, very dark. I held my hand right in front of my face, and I couldn't see a thing. The only light was the occasional flashing red LEDs from the voice recorders positioned around the room. We'd not even begun to attempt to communicate with Daniel, or any other spirits residing in the archives when Andy heard footsteps behind him. He decided to relocate to the area where the footsteps seemed to be coming from, amongst racks of the museum's artefacts. Dwayne asked out loud, If you're here amongst us, Daniel, can you make your presence known? With this, we all heard a rustling sound which appeared to come from the area which Andy had moved to, but Andy was adamant that he hadn't moved or brushed against anything. We all joined Andy in the central area and made sure that we were all stood clear of one another, as it was a fairly confined space. Dwayne continued to ask aloud for Daniel to give us a sign that he was here with us. Five minutes or so passed, all was quiet, until Dwayne unexpectedly blurted out, What was that? He immediately turned his head torch on, blinding me and Mark who were stood opposite him. Dwayne explained that he had felt somebody stroke his arm, but as he looked around the group, it was apparent that we were all too far away from him for it to have been one of us. He left his head torch on as he held his arms out and asked for the spirit to touch him again. Nothing touched Dwayne's arm in response to his request, but Mark turned around quickly looking behind him. Dwayne asked what Mark had seen or heard and he answered that he'd heard footsteps hurriedly pass behind him. To all five of us it seemed obvious that we were not alone. We spent another 30 minutes in the archives, but after the footsteps Mark had heard, the room seemed to settle down, and we didn't experience anything more. We returned to base and I personally felt really infused by the happenings down in the archives. Two different people had clearly heard footsteps when we were all stood perfectly still, and we were so far below ground, it could not be attributed to any form of natural source from outside. Nor could it have been the other team, as they weren't even in the same building as us, as they'd been in the Great Hall. And for Rich, it was a much-anticipated return to the railway bridge that had caused him and Tony such panic earlier in the evening. This is what happened upon his return, in his own words. It was five hours before we dared to return to the bridge. This time Tony and I led the way with Graham, the parapsychologist from Tom's team, Tom, John and Steve. As I climbed the stairs to the bridge for the second time that night, the parapsychologist asked me to stand where I was standing when I first felt strange. I did so, and he started to rub his chin. We've had reports by people saying that they've seen an apparition exactly where you're standing, he said. It was like being in a movie where a character suddenly turns out to have magical telepathic powers. But that sort of thing doesn't happen to me. I'm quite boring normally, so I was struggling to believe that any of this was actually happening. Graham was exactly what every ghost hunt needs, a rational, level-headed thinker. We began to try and debunk my earlier experience 
and I was hoping more than anybody that it could easily be explained. He started by ascending the steps himself to see if he felt any change in camber underfoot. Perhaps a confused inner ear could have induced a feeling of imbalance and disorientation leading to a panic attack. However, nothing was obviously wrong with the bridge, and if there had been, we reckoned more of the dozen people who had climbed these stairs earlier would have been likely affected in the same way that I was. Next we ran a laser thermometer along the handrail from the centre of the bridge, where I felt calmer, to the top of the stairs, where I felt strange. There was a point, very close to the top of the stairs, where the temperature suddenly dropped from 24 degrees Celsius to 17 degrees Celsius. Graham surveyed the air conditioning vents and agreed that they weren't close enough to cause that contrast in temperature. The closest we could get to an explanation was residual heat from somebody resting their arm against the handrail. But even then, it was hit and miss when we tried to reproduce it, and even so, it had been five hours since anybody had rested their arm there. Next, we set up a C-cell battery on a piece of paper from the second from the top step, and drew around it. We asked any spirits nearby to move the battery, or knock it. Half an hour passed without reply. But during this time, Tony and I had ascended and descended the bridge many times to try and get to know the bridge's effects on us. We both agreed that whatever energy or spirit or whatever it was was fading away and was affecting us less now. It was obvious at the time to think that we were using up that energy. Writing these words now is very strange. I'm no expert in the paranormal. That's Rob's job. I was just along for the ride and yet at that time it was very clear to a sceptic amateur that the energy was diminishing. After an hour on the bridge I felt nothing anymore. The contrast between the area that made me panic and the area where I felt incredibly calm had vanished too. It was all just incredibly normal and boring again. However, with one final vigil ahead of us, I wasn't quite finished giving Derek Akora a run for his money. Back at base, the 11 of us took an extended break as the evening had been extremely frantic. And this combined with the time being well after 2am, was beginning to take its toll. Everyone refuelled with cups of hot coffee and energy drinks as we took the opportunity to get to know each other a little better and share stories and experiences from previous investigations. Tony asked to know more about the book I was working on and we discussed the nine other locations across York that my team and I would investigate over the next year and a bit. The conversation eventually moved back to the investigation at hand and with enough time left for one more vigil each, we decided that Graham and Steve would come with our team and spend some time in the Wagon H Lees and Sun carriage that the group had investigated much earlier. And the other group, which by now consisted of only Rich, Tom, John and Tony, would also be in the station hall, but they would be over by the royal carriages. At ten to three in the morning, we headed out into the museum for one final throw of the dice, and I had high hopes as we carefully climbed aboard the Wagon H. Lazenson's carriage. We walked through the carriage, past creepy mannequins at every turn, and I sat down in an empty compartment on my own, pressing record on my voice recorder and putting it on the seat next to me. The other guy sat in the next compartment along. Dwayne immediately tried to stir up some activity by speaking out, asking for anyone there with us to let us know that they were there. This was closely followed by a knock at the window, seemingly in response to Dwayne's question. I found this particularly interesting, as the other group had also heard a knock at the window when they investigated this location earlier. Further questions disappointingly drew a blank, so we tried a change of approach, challenging the spirits to prove that they exist and that they are powerful enough to move something or touch someone. Dwayne stopped talking 
and we all heard a voice shout loudly just outside the carriage. We all sat bolt upright and looked at each other in a, did you just hear that kind of way? Tom tried to radio through to the other team to establish their current location and if they'd heard the same. However, there was no response. Mark said that he would head across to the other team, while we would resume our attempts to communicate with the spirits of this historic carriage. Mark approached the other group, but with them having no idea that he was on their way to see them, what they saw emerging out of the blackness towards them was a dark man-sized figure, and all four of them stood there dumbfounded, believing that they were seeing a ghost. John turned on his torch and rather bravely approached the figure, saying hello, who are you, can you tell us your name? To which the mysterious shadowy creature clicked on his head torch and replied, it's me you daft bastards. Meanwhile back on the carriage, our continued attempts to coax some form of activity had failed. With the only notable occurrence being the sound of a train speeding past the museum, our investigation had drawn to an end and we headed back to base for the final time. As we walked up the stairs Andy said to me quietly, why was everyone seemingly so puzzled by the sound of a train? We're right next to York train station and that was clearly the sound of an electric class 92 logo, but I didn't want to say anything at the time as it would have made me seem a little nerdy to the others. A little bit mate, a little bit.
There's anything else you can do if you can't knock. Can you try and walk towards me? Can you open or close one of the compartment doors? Didn't she? She did, yeah. She weren't keen though, was she? Pardon? She weren't keen on him. 
No, I thought he was a bit sort of like a vicious and what have you. I'm going to knock again, because we're not quite sure if what we heard was actual communication or if it was natural. So if I knock again, please try and copy. else on this train other than myself and our team and you can hear my voice or you can hear the sounds that I'm going to make please can you try and repeat it on this train that may want to communicate. Please do it now before we leave. No need to be nervous or afraid of us. We don't mean you any harm. We're here simply to communicate with you. knocking, please reply. Use some of our energy. You can see we've got energy here, you can spare, you can use it. All we want is clear communication. And then you've got this carriage to yourself. It gets locked up once we've finished. It's yours again. You'll be undisturbed for months. So all we ask is just two or three minutes of communication with you. I'm going to knock again. If you can hear the knock, please repeat it. The other team arrived back at bay shortly after us. And as I chatted with Rich, it appeared that aside from their ghost sighting, which turned out to be Mark, 
they may have also had some genuine experiences, with Rich seeming to connect with the spirit of a man who lost his life in a tragic accident. This is what happened in his own words. The very last place I went was the Royal Carriages, with Rob's brother Tom, John and Tony. As we walk up here, see if you feel or see anything. This is the most active area, said Tony, as we walk the platform between the Royal Carriages towering overhead. It's amazing how tall trains are, when you don't have a few feet of concrete platform to stand on. As we walk past one carriage, I started to feel strange again, but the feeling went as I reached the end of it. Suddenly though, the feeling came back as we approached the end of one of Queen Victoria's carriages. I felt like I was being watched from where the driver would have sat. We continued along the rest of the carriages, then headed back. I confessed to feeling strange in two places on the walk up, and wanted to see if it happened again before I mentioned exactly where, to Tom, John and Tony. Walking past the driver compartment of Queen Victoria's carriage, I felt watched again, and mentioned it to Tony, who had significantly more experience and knowledge of the events around there. During Queen Victoria's reign, they were shunting this carriage. That's what they call it when they join two trains together with another. What they normally do is get the two trains next to each other, and stop, and then somebody steps in and connects them. But there's a story associated with this particular train, where they got the hand signals wrong, and the guy who went in to connect the trains actually got his head crushed in the buffers. We have had lots of people reporting suffering headaches in this area, and seeing the figure of a man. I must admit that it wasn't a headache that I felt, but the hairs on my neck were prickling, as I really did feel like I was being watched from the compartment above the buffers that had killed a man. I mentioned that the enormous black carriage next to Queen Victoria's was also making me feel odd. Tony said that there were stories of a woman wearing a white dress who had been seen walking alongside this carriage. He described a time when one of his team had seen this apparition, but in the dark gloom hadn't realised what he was seeing. The team member had shone his torch in front of the figure, thinking that it was just another teammate without a torch and in need of guidance, but as the light struck the ground in front of her, she vanished. Looking back on our night at the National Railway Museum in hindsight, I still don't know what made me feel so different in those places where apparitions had been seen. I can't rule out that there were some other factors which made me feel different, such as the positioning of air conditioning vents, uneven floor surfaces, or maybe just overhearing something earlier in the night, which subliminally was stored in my brain. What I do know is that I'm usually a very calm person, and I am able to notice when my emotions change, especially when that change is towards fear, like I felt so vividly on the bridge. I don't have issues with heights, I am learning to fly, and fear of heights would be a problem for that. I also don't have balance issues, I am an instructor of Taekwondo, so my balance is pretty good. And I usually don't like to draw attention to myself unnecessarily, especially to a group of experienced ghost hunters who might consider me a liability to their investigations. Yet, every time I felt strange, there had been prior reports of something happening there. So perhaps people do leave behind some energy or a spirit when they pass on. Our host Tom had been at the Travel and Post Office to collect the locked off video camera as Rich had been recollecting his experiences at the Royal Carriages to me. And upon quickly scanning through the video footage, it appeared that the video camera had captured no movement whatsoever. It was now after four in the morning. So we thanked the part guys who were a brilliant group of lads and said our goodbyes. 
we grabbed our belongings and headed outside into the staff car park, which was now covered by a thick frost. It was everywhere, as it was bloody freezing. Thankfully the walk back to Bar Convent was mercifully short and would only take us about five minutes. We all shared thoughts and experiences of our brilliant night at the National Railway Museum as we walked the deserted streets. The only person we saw was a young lad who'd obviously had a big night out in York and was now fast asleep sat upright in a bush shelter, wearing just a short-sleeved shirt. I got to bed at 4.30 in the morning, and I was out like a light. However, I was rudely awoken just three and a half hours later by a loud repetitive banging sound coming from the room next to mine. John's room. I sat up with a start, and it took me a few moments to get my bearings, due to being absolutely exhausted and being in unfamiliar surroundings. I checked the time, and it was only 8 in the morning. There was almost two hours remaining before we'd agreed to meet. I tried to get back to sleep, but the banging continued for almost 10 minutes, by which time I was wide awake. I went for a shower, and lay on my bed looking through the photos on my camera from the investigation which had ended only a few short hours ago. We had agreed to meet downstairs at 10 to 10, but when I turned up, John was the only other person there. We assumed the others wouldn't be too long, so I took the opportunity to ask John if he was to blame for the really loud banging at 8 in the morning. He replied completely expressionless, Oh yeah, that was me getting dressed. Getting dressed? It sounded to me like he was building a shed. I was too tired to get into a discussion about it, so I simply nodded in agreement and said, All right. The grandfather clock we were stood next to chimed for 10am, but there was still no sign of the other three. At just after five past we heard voices headed our way, and a moment or two later, Rich Tom and a rather dishevelled Andy appeared. Before John and I could speak, Tom, being only too aware of his own reputation for having terrible punctuality, launched a preemptive strike by discreetly pointing at Andy and mouthing the words, it was his fault. John playfully said, what time do you call this? To which Andy's response was rather vitriolic, I wasn't late, how could I be late when I woke up at 9.50am which is what we agreed? He went on to tell us that he'd not set his alarm as he decided it was better to just sleep until he woke up, and because of people rushing him about, he'd not had time to have a wash or brush his teeth. He seemed a bit grumpy, tired and confused, so I decided not to point out the fact that even if he'd gotten up earlier, he'd not brought anything with him to have a wash or brush his teeth with. All he'd brought with him was a can of Diet Coke, which he drank before we'd even left the northeast, his camera and a clean pair of underpants. A clean pair of underpants, which would be going back to Newcastle, as clean as they were when we left, as he told us he'd not even had time to change into them. Andy was still complaining when we got into my car for the 90 minute drive home. We may have been leaving York for now, but I echo the comments Rich made as we joined the A19. One investigation down and nine more to go, I can't wait. It wouldn't be long before we'd be heading back to York for the next venue. However, unbeknown to myself and others at the time, one of our number had found his night at the National Railway Museum to be such an intensely frightening experience that it proved to be their one and only investigation. A couple of months later I was in Newcastle for some festive drinks with John and Andy just before Christmas when Andy dropped an unexpected bombshell. He told us that as much as he'd enjoyed spending time with the four of us on a trip to the National Railway Museum, he didn't feel comfortable during the investigation. He said he was genuinely freaked out when we were speaking out into darkened rooms, asking for things to happen and for unseen hands to touch him. 
It really hit home to him how real the paranormal could be, and he was scared. These weren't things he wanted to do again, so wouldn't be continuing our York adventure. I tried to talk him round, but he'd been considering it since the investigation, and his mind was made up. Thank you for joining me for this special episode. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I'll aim to put a special episode out for you every month. If you're not a Patreon supporter, and you're listening to this in the future when I've released it to everybody, you could have accessed this podcast back in April by becoming a Patreon supporter for only £3 a month, and you'll also get early access to all of the weekly podcasts. For more information, check out this podcast episode description, head over to the website at www.how-haunted.com or go to patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at howhauntedpod or over on Instagram at howhauntedpod where you will see photos galore relating to our investigation at the National Railway Museum. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com. Feedback, location, suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like, and I'll answer them all on a dedicated Q&A episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast in your podcast provider of choice. Thank you so much for accompanying me for this very special paranormal adventure. Stay safe, and join me next time when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted? I looked in the rearview mirror and my entire back window was blocked out by rich smi- <laughs> I looked in the rearview mirror 
and my entire back window was blocked out by Rich smiling back at me, appearing a foot taller than Andy and John. <laughs> oh, that's madness. I can't say it. <laughs> Why did he do that? I looked in the rearview mirror, and my entire back window was blocked out by Rich Sm <laughs> I can't say it. Right, come on, Robert. Let's do it. I looked in the rearview mirror, and my entire back window was blocked out by Rich smiling back at me. <laughs> oh, God. It's not that funny. Come on, come on. <laughs> 